Hi, I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm his mom, Ellen Carter. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast provider of choice. Thank you. In our last episode, while breaking the news of her husband's death to Sally Bannister, Joe learned of Bill's plan to usurp his position as town sheriff. With Bill's lies circulating through town like wildfire, Joe's job hangs even more precariously in the balance than it did before Bill's murder. And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yard Work, written by Charles and Ellen Carter, narrated by Ellen Carter. Listener discretion is advised. The deputy nodded his head. Thank you, ma'am. He waited until Anne had left the room before he continued. I have some good news and some bad news, Sheriff. Joe grimaced. Give me the bad news first. We just got a call from Bobby Donay. He's pissed because you didn't call him about Bill. He had to hear it from Richard Harbinger, and Harbinger wants him to force you to bring in the state police. Donay said he wants to meet with you first thing this morning. Oh, and Harbinger is going to be there too. Harbinger? He's not on the board of selectmen. What the hell does he have to do with this? Concerned citizen? Right. Joe thought for a moment and then added, I have a feeling that this is going to turn out to be a full-blown meeting of the board of selectmen. I don't have the time for their political maneuvering and finger-pointing. The bottom line is, they're going to blame me for not bringing in the state police sooner, Joe thought aloud, forgetting for a moment that Ronnie Boucher was there. So you're going to bring in the state police, Sheriff? Joe stared at Ronnie, weighing his words before he answered. No. I hope that's all of the bad news. Ronnie nodded his head yes. Are you ready for the good news? Why not? That green-knitted glove you found in the motel room is the mate for the one you found not far from Bill's body. What about the green-knitted glove we found at the Harvey's? It's identical to the other two. It's the same yarn and pattern, but it's smaller. Joe looked at him skeptically. I didn't know you knitted. Ronnie's face flushed red, and a guilty grin crept across it. Well, to tell you the truth, Sheriff, it was Eve who figured it out. She took a good look at the gloves. She thinks the same person knitted all three. She said that everyone who knits has their own style. Joe nodded his head, smiled, and said under his breath, Thank you, Eve. He thought for a moment. He knew who had knitted the gloves. Ronnie, I want you to go buy Hunter Langtrees and bring her into the station. Tell her I want to speak with her. And Ronnie... 
Don't take no for an answer and don't take any shit. I want her at the station house. Do you understand? Ronnie stood up straighter, bringing his five feet, five inch frame to its full height, squaring his beefy shoulders and adjusting his gun belt around his softening middle. His face took on a serious demeanor. Do you think she's the one who knitted the gloves, Sheriff? That's what I want to find out. Don't mention anything to her about the gloves, Ronnie. It's important. And if I'm with the selectmen when you bring her in, park her out front where Eve can keep an eye on her, and then come over to the town hall and let me know. You can count on me, Sheriff, Ronnie said. Give my regards to Miss Newton. He brushed his dark brown hair to one side with his left hand and placed his Stetson back on his head with his right. Then he turned and walked out the door. Joe heard Anne's soft footsteps behind him. He turned. She had changed from her loose-fitting silk nightgown and robe into a pair of snug-fitting jeans that flattered her figure, ankle-high black boots, and a form-fitting black cowl-knit sweater. He remembered the first time he'd seen that type of sweater. His seventh-grade teacher, Miss Feister, was bending down by his desk, showing him how to draw a building using three-point perspective. The large collar of her sweater was lying on his desk. As he looked up to ask her a question, his eyes fell upon her milk-white skin, the soft curve of her breasts, and the white lacy top of her bra. The smell of her perfume added to the titillating experience. There was a stirring in his pants, embarrassment and guilt. He knew he shouldn't have looked, but he did. Quickly looking up at her face, he realized that she was unaware of what the large cowl opening of her sweater was revealing. He looked down at his drawing, knowing that if he glanced up at her again, he would have the opportunity to see the smooth white skin of her breasts straining against the lacy material. He took a short gulp of air and looked up again. She never noticed his furtive glances, and he never looked at Miss Feister quite the same way again. After that, he was aware of everything she wore. She was in his fantasies for months. It had been decades since he'd thought about that incident. But seeing Anne standing there wearing that same type of sweater had brought it rushing back, and with it, the same feeling in his pants compounded with the early morning need to relieve himself. Um, could I use your bathroom? Sure, it's down the hall on your left. As he brushed by her, she stood on tiptoe and kissed him softly on the lips. She leaned her head on his chest, and he pulled her close to him, wrapping his strong arms around her, resting the side of his face on her head. He could sense that she had lowered her defenses, or whatever it was that had stood between them. He squeezed her tighter, took a deep breath, and said, You're driving me crazy. I know. Sometimes I drive myself crazy, she whispered. He gently grasped her by the shoulders, held her at arm's length, and looked at her. We have to talk. She nodded her head. What if I make dinner this evening and you bring some wine? What kind? Whatever strikes your fancy. About eight, eight-thirty? All right, he said, slowly pulling her toward him and gently kissing her on her forehead. I feel you have to go. Go? Joe asked. To the bathroom? Anne said as she looked up at him with a smile. Oh, right. She caught his hand. He turned and looked at her. Joe, how did Harbinger know about Bill? What? Joe asked. 
I overheard part of your conversation with Ronnie. How did Harbinger know? The edge of night had given way to the first soft, muted signs of a purplish dawn as he crossed the open field behind the darkened house. The wind rushed across the meadow through the brown, dry grass. The sound it made brought to his mind the soft rustle of women's satin and crinoline dresses. Off to his right, the bright yellows, muted reds, and rusty browns of the fallen foliage rose and swirled like a flock of sparrows looking for a roost, quickly changing direction, darting this way and that across the early morning sky before cascading down to the dry grass, some being caught there while the rest were swept aloft again. He stood in the shadows, where he had stood only two nights before, watching Kathy Ann attack Tim. He stood there now, hidden from view, waiting, watching, before he crept silently up the porch steps to the kitchen door. His breath came hard and heavy. He had been running most of the night, first from Bannister and then from Joe Martin. He knew they were probably watching Hunter's house. He had figured the last place they'd look for him would be this house. His breath frosted the window pane. A loud crack from a branch on a swaying tree made him flinch. He glanced quickly over his shoulder, but saw only the leaves being pushed forward by the wind, darting and whirling about in the sky, tumbling and rushing through the dry grass toward him. He turned and tried the doorknob. It was locked. He raised his hand and, using the knuckles of his first two fingers, tapped sharply, persistently, against the cold window pane. A sustained gust of frigid wind buffeted the house, causing the windows to rattle. He drew his shoulders up and shivered. Pulling his knife from its sheath, he slipped the point between the jam and the door and maneuvered it so that it would catch the latch. He forced the latch back with his blade and gave the door a sharp push with his shoulder. The door opened. The lights came on. Through squinted eyes, he saw that Kathy Ann Harvey's face wore a mixed expression of fear and surprise as she stood in the doorway of her kitchen wearing a chocolate silk robe and slippers. The wind rushed past him, pulling the doorknob from his hand that had been stiffened by the cold, slamming the door against the kitchen wall, and lifting the edge of Kathy Ann's robe to reveal her shapely leg and upper thigh. He raised his knife and pointed it at her. Don't you move. Still facing her, he pulled the door closed and locked it. The kitchen window and doorframe rattled violently as the wind and the curtain of leaves slammed against its surface. The sudden sound made him jump. He stared at the door, surprise and confusion clouding his face. Hesitating for only a moment, he turned back to face Kathy Ann. It's colder than a witch's titty out there. He slowly walked towards her. Where's that fucking husband of yours? Kathy Ann stood there frozen, her eyes fixed on the knife as he approached. A smile slowly crept across her face. He's in the hospital, she said, looking up at him. You frighten me coming in here like that. Put that away. He laid the knife on the counter and grabbed her, pulling her close to him, feeling her warmth and inhaling her clean scent. Greg, you're freezing and you need a shave. Your beard hurts, she pulled away from him. What happened to Tim? He fell down and broke his neck, I hope. No, someone attacked him. They almost killed him. Vivian smiled. Too bad they didn't. He knew what she was saying was only partially true. 
He knew that she had tried to kill Tim herself initially. Is what they're saying about you true, Greg? Did you kill that little girl? Do I look like a baby killer, Kathy Ann? No, uh, of course not, but... But what? Well, I just thought that maybe it was you the other night out back. I know how much you hate Tim. I thought maybe you were the one who grabbed me and forced me to stab him. He looked at her. Forced you to stab him? He asked. And smiling, he added, No, it wasn't me. If I'd wanted to stab him, I would have done it myself. Joe Martin bought that story? Craig, it's not a story. It's true. That's what happened. All right. Martin didn't ask you any questions about this person? Of course he did. He asked if I could describe him, but I said no, I couldn't. It was too dark and he was behind me. Then he showed me a green-knit glove with an H stitched on it and asked if it was mine. I told him no, I'd never seen it before. A look of concern flickered across Greg's face. He remembered finding Hunter's glove after leaving her house. He had hastily stuffed it back in his pocket and had forgotten all about it until Kathy Ann had mentioned it just now. He must have lost it that night in his struggle with Kathy Ann. Look, I'm sorry, but I had to ask Greg. It's been bothering me. I don't know who would have done that. I know a lot of people around here who don't like Tim. It could have been any one of them. And the girl, she asked, her head lowered, her eyes glancing up at him. Look, I told you I didn't do that, Greg said with an angry edge to his voice. Okay, okay, I believe you. Please don't get angry. He dismissed her plea. I haven't eaten in a couple of days and I'm cold to the bone. Fix me something to eat, he replied harshly. Please don't be angry with me. I'm not angry, he replied, his voice still tense and stern. He stopped, took a deep breath, and after a moment he said, Kathy Ann, I'm not angry with you. They've been after me for two days. I'm cold, I'm hungry, and I'm tired. I need a way out of town. You're the only one I can trust. Can you help me? Kathy Ann looked into his eyes, her own eyes wide and hopeful. Can I go with you? What about Tim? It's over. I'm leaving him. We could stay here until nightfall and then leave. People would be less likely to notice us. Sounds like you've been thinking about this for a while, he smiled, waiting for the right opportunity. I hate it here, and whatever feelings I had for Tim died long ago, Kathy Ann replied defensively. Vivian thought for a moment and nodded his head slowly. It sounds like a plan. I'm going to go take a shower. I like my eggs over easy. And now, a preview of our next episode. Joe has a showdown with a board of selectmen. What do they demand of Joe, and why is Joe's former opponent for town sheriff present at the meeting? Please consider joining our Patreon site and becoming a Dreadnought. For only $3 a month, our Dreadnoughts get early access to free episodes, exclusive periodic commentary by the authors of the books and the creators of the podcast, exclusive access to episodes of the second half of each book as those episodes are released, and access to the entire back catalog of episodes as our podcast goes forward. 
Click the link in the show description now to become a dreadnought and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses.